chapter 17, Revelation has been called a tale of two cities. One of the cities that we read much of in the book of Revelation is Babylon, a future city which represents this evil world and its appeals and how it uh, is a reproach to the, to the one true God. Babylon and its character and its destiny are described in detail in this chapter 17 and chapter 18. And the other city that is uh, of the tale is the New Jerusalem, where its glory and its goodness uh, are described in Revelation 21 and 22. And so at this point in the book, uh, we are confronted with two inescapable questions And that is, which city do you want to inhabit? Which city do you want to be a part of? And really, as we're going to see in the text today, which city will you worship? Which city will you love and live for? And every single one of us in this room must answer this question. And in a real sense, it's where Revelation has been taking us all along. Lazion says, regardless of whether people will acknowledge it, every person was created by God to know him and to worship him. But for many, instead of worshiping God, we've turned from worshiping the creator and we've begun to worship the created things. All manners of people, places, and things have got our affection, have got our heart, have got our resources, our time, our money, and our energy, and we have become to worship, uh, become worshipers of these things. And really at the heart of it all is we are worshipers of ourselves. Self-worship is what we've turned to. Sigmund Freud was an atheist, and he described religion as an illusion. Freud said, when a man is freed of religion, he has a better chance to live a normal and wholesome life life. Gandhi said, I consider myself a Hindu and a Christian and a Muslim and a Jew and a Buddhist and a Confucian. And I think what he meant was, and confused is really what that was. There are those who deny God as creator to embrace the religion and the faith of evolution. And there's a Christian comedian, Robert G. Lee, who said, I have a hard time believing that billions of years ago, microorganisms bumped into each other under a volcanic cesspool and evolved into Cindy Crawford. (laughs) We would probably all agree with that. Like, how did that happen? John Piper says it well. He says, it's the goal of everything that the angels have been revealing in Revelation. It's what the whole book of Revelation is about. The point of all of God's judgments and all of God's dealings with the world, all God's plans for history from beginning to the end have one goal. Worship God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. Don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen forever. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. This angel will say, don't worship me, worship God. Don't worship Babylon, this world system with its pleasures and its wealth and its luxuries. Worship God. Unfortunately, every human Every one of us, everyone in this room has been too easily allured and trapped by this world. We don't see this world for what it really is and where it ultimately leads to death and to destruction. And today for a number of days, I've just been praying over this text that God would use Revelation 17 and next week chapter 18 to expose the world and the pleasures of it, and the lusts of it, and the pride of it, for what it really is. It's a cannibal. It destroys. And so I want to break up this chapter today 
into um, eight different uh, sections, a, a bit of an outline, and I'm just going to briefly run through them before we get in. In verses 1 through 5, we see that this world or Babylon is seductive. From 6 uh, alone, we see that this word, world is murderous. In verses 6 through 8, we see this world is resilient. In verses 9 through 10, this world of Babylon is going to be organized. Verses 11 through 13, it's powerful. Throughout the rest, it's foolish, it's self-destructive, and it's seductive. Chapter 17 is going to show us religious Babylon and its end. And chapter 18 will show us economic, the government of Babylon and its end. A.W. Tozer was right when he said, The whole world has been booby-trapped by the devil. And the deadliest trap of all is the religious one. We're going to see the booby trap from the devil in verse 17 of false religion and that that this world would have to offer uh, now and then in the future. So let's look at verse 1 where it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many Waters. So we know this angel has been uh, one of the angels pouring out a bowl judgment upon uh, the world. He just got done in the last chapter being one of the seven who brought a decisive blow of judgment upon the earth, such as had never been seen before. And now he's going to display the judgment that comes out on the city of Babylon, the government of Babylon, the economic system of Babylon, and then here in verse uh, chapter 17, especially the religion, the false religion called Babylon. And perhaps he is that same angel who will show uh, John the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, because one of the angels who poured out a bowl in chapter 21, he uh, shows the new Jerusalem and John begins to worship him, and that angel directs worship to where it needs to go, and that is to God. And so he says, come, I'll show you the judgment, verse 1, of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Back in chapter 16, we see that this great city, Babylon, was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and that great Babylon was remembered before God. God remembered this wicked city of the end times, Babylon, Why did he remember it? 1619 says, so that he could give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. You know, uh, the word fierce is kind of a catchy word that's being used um, in this culture in these days. You know, someone's love is fierce or some great action that they did on the court or on the field or on the video game, whatever it is. Man, that was fierce, you know. Uh, Something like Gatorade has a certain color of beverage, a hydrating beverage with electrolytes, and it's fierce, you know. And, uh, And yet when we read in the book of Revelation, the wrath of God against this wicked world system is going to be fierce. It's described with fierceness. And Babylon is going to be referred to as a great harlot many times in Revelation. It's a common reference to cities that have been given over to immorality in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Nehemiah. Any city that's given over to uh, wickedness and debauchery uh, has been called a harlot city. Johnny called me while I was eating breakfast today and he said, hey, what's a good last uh, song that, that we could do after the sermon today? And I was like, oh man, you know that one song, Babylon. Babylon, you know, who was that? David, David Blaine, not David Blaine, he's a magician, or Copperfield, I don't know. And he just started chuckling, like, yeah, we won't be doing that one for the end song, but, you know, I'd be singing about harlotry, essentially. Babylon is is not the song to be singing. We see what she will be met with in this chapter. So look at verse 2, this great harlot who sits on many waters, and and just so you know, we're going to be getting into some interesting Uh, symbolism and imagery that if you were new to reading the Bible, you'd be like, this is why I never read the Bible. 
This is just so far above my head. And the beautiful thing and the helpful thing is that John interprets it for us, the important things, just in a few verses. So just hear us out, hear John the Revelator out, because he's going to help us understand um, what the beast is, what this harlot is, what the waters are, everything like that. So uh, we see that the kings of the earth in verse 2 committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So two times in this verse we have the word fornication. It's the Greek word pornea, which it doesn't take a scholar to go modern day, what that might be referring to. Sexual immorality, pornea, pornography, any type of sex outside of marriage in the Bible in the New Testament is called pornea. Uh, And usually in the scripture, pornea refers to sexual immorality, but in this case, in Revelation 17, it also refers to spiritual immorality or spiritual harlotry, and it refers to idolatry or idol worship and all kinds of gross acts of debauchery and wickedness. Hosea, if you've never read Hosea, that's a great uh, example of, uh, of how when we turn our hearts away from God to worship idols, we have committed what the Bible often refers to as spiritual harlotry, spiritual fornication, okay? Spiritual prostitution. And we see twice here that uh, the kings of the earth and then other inhabitants of the earth commit this fornication with her. Uh, first of all, the kings, speaking of the world leaders of this time and the future, and uh, not only the world leaders, but also the common folk, the regular people, the regular inhabitants of the earth also participate in these acts. And so as a whole, you've got this Babylon, it's going to be a future uh, rebuilding of the, the former Babylon. Uh, it's going to encompass just so many different things, so many nations. But essentially, at the end of the day, it's Satan's government that he is going to have on this earth in the end of the days. And, uh, and, and it's going to be marked by a lust for power. It's going to be marked by material possessions, sex, and pleasure. And the language here that we read with this wine goblet and drinking of the wine is that it's this intoxicating uh, sinful, idolatrous, adulterous lifestyle and living. And you know what the truth is, though, as we read this chapter, so often we just get disgusted and we kind of look back, you know, from, from, a, from a futuristic point and we just, oh, this, this woman, this harlot, whatever this devilish beast is, oh, and fornication and the kings of the earth. But something that we've got to know to bring application home for us today in 2020 Prineville is that not one of us has escaped this lust. Not one of us has escaped this immorality, this debauchery. In a thousand different ways, we have all partaken of this same materialistic, lustful, covetous, uh, luxurious, immoral, idolatrous, pagan, just worship of something that's not Jesus. At the end of the day, that's what it is. It's where our hearts have gone that have been disobedient to Jesus and have gone after other pleasures. We have not escaped this harlot's enticing allurements. C.J. Mahaney said it well, Today, the greatest challenge facing evangelical, Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. And I think that fits we Americans so well. And John, the revelator, said in another spot in the Bible, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, And if you can just really press in right now and hear that the same writer who saw this woman on the beast, he he writes this in another place. And if you can just let it sear into your heart, do not love the world or the things 
in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lusts of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. You know, I believe that it is uh, just speaking right to us who are living for the American dream today of more pleasure, more possessions. He who dies with the most toys wins. There are three kind of bullets in the gun of the devil here in verse 16. And, and it's been called these three bullets of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These, these three things, just we get so wrapped up in them. And as you look statistically, Christians, especially in America, look no different than the world. We've got nearly a higher divorce rate than the world. We've got nearly a lower generosity rate than people in the world. We've got, you know, I just heard a statistic that some 3% of Christians tithe to their local church. We've got everything under the sun robbing our heart and our affection on the Lord's day to where if anything else could come up in our schedule, we give, we give it precedence rather than coming and, and worshiping and fellowshipping with the saints, with his people. The immorality and the sexual immorality level and the drunkenness among people who call themselves Christians, even within our church, is astounding. And I think that we are absolutely foolish and ignorant to read about Babylon in the future and the world in our day and to not be honest before the Lord and say, Lord, we as your people have loved this world more than we love you. And I just have had to spend time this week on my face crying out for the Lord to just strip out and strip off and show deep in my heart the ways that that is true for me. And I would ask you today to do the same thing. Be open to Jesus today to say, this is how you have fallen for this harlot's allurement in this world. You've been loving the world. You've been loving this, this temporary lifestyle of pleasure rather than loving me who's eternal and loves you. These things are not from the Father, but are from the world. You cannot love the Father and love the world. The Christian apologist C.S. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. And I like that, that C.S. Lewis said that. You know, we're just like ignorant children just playing with mud pies, slapping it around, you know. You know, and just, oh, just the most wealthy individual in the world would say, hey, come, I want to take you to just the place of the best pleasures in the world. Let's go to a holiday at the sea. I don't even know what you're talking about. How could there be anything more than this slum, slum dog mud pie that I'm making here? And we are being robbed by the system of this world. We're being robbed by the promises of this world. We're being robbed by the lies of the enemy who in the future will just be epitomized as this woman, this harlot, in verse 3 of our text today, so this angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. We see that happen kind of a few times in the book of Revelation. And I saw a woman, so here's the, the woman that we've been referring to. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So he sees this harlot that was referred to just uh, two verses earlier. Uh, we have this, uh, this beast make an appearance. Beasts have often been referred to in Revelation 
as who the devil uses to carry out his schemes on earth. The devil in the book of Revelation is called the dragon, that great dragon, that serpent of old, the slanderer. The devil's the dragon, and the devil brings about these beasts that we've read about. One of the beasts is called the Antichrist, who comes on the world in the place of Christ and tries to deceive people to follow him as Savior. And another beast that we've found so far in our book of Revelation study is he who's called the false prophet, and he's kind of an anti-Holy Spirit, and anti means comes in the place of. He comes like the Holy Spirit, and he tries to get everyone to follow the Antichrist and to worship the Antichrist. Most believe that this beast that the woman is riding on is the Antichrist of chapter 13. So essentially what we have already by verse 3 is a rodeo from hell with a bull rider from hell. And this woman is dressed in scarlet. Rather, uh, we, we do see that. That's in uh, verse 4. But the beast is uh, in scarlet and just has these, you know, whatever, tattoos or some sort of markings uh, that speak of authorities and blasphemies, revilings and slanderings against God. And so this Antichrist and his system, just, it, just all over him, he just, he, he's just red-handedly blasphemous against God. And we have an interpretation coming up in a few verses for these seven heads, which will, which will mess with your imagination, no doubt. Uh, as well as ten horns, which will mess with your imagination, no doubt. Verse 4 says that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, so she's wearing the same attire as the beast, or she's wearing the same colors as the beast. And she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. It's interesting because in everything that I read this week, they, they kept pointing out the allure of this woman. And that hadn't been my first thought as I read through this and have read through, but just that, you know, that she's a, a really a beautiful harlot. She's just attractive. And the allure of her in this verse four, that she's attractive, that she has appeal, that she draws attention to her. Uh, her appearance is to be noted here. The fact that she's wearing purple and scarlet and that she's arrayed like royalty. For a period of time, this harlot will uh, have almost this religious system of chapter 17 will have nearly a royal power and authority um, over the system of the world. And she's adorned with all kinds of precious gems and stones and pearls which speak of the wealth of the world. Next week in chapter 18, we're going to see all of the commodities that this system of Babylon and its economy and its religion will bring about. And just like so many cults, uh, so many people that get away from the word of God, uh, their religious system becomes uh, economic uh, prosperity and uh, luxury, and uh, it has an end in wealth and riches. And uh, like a high-priced prostitute, this woman is beautifully and seductively dressed. She's quite attractive like any beautiful adulteress. Um, chapter 6 of the book of Proverbs in verse 24 says that the evil woman has a flattering tongue of a seductress, so don't lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. And I'm, I don't really know, you know, how the girls and the women in this room, how your minds work, but I can probably speak for the men that, you know, just a beautiful woman with eyelids that flutter and just the adornment, it just, it so quickly can steal a man's heart and affections. Uh, to go where they shouldn't go. The Proverbs of Wisdom always speak of this. And so the Proverbs in chapter 6 say, don't let her allure you with those eyelids, those butterfly eyes. No, Don't even look. Don't go there. You know, it's Job that says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully 
upon a woman. And uh, Proverbs chapter 7 speaks all about this. And and maybe we'll come back to Proverbs chapter 7 later, but in in verse 16, she just says, I've spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. Let us delight our, rather, uh, I skipped a verse. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. And and, you know, that's, that's the voice of this religious system saying, come away and come worship this system that is not towards Yahweh, not towards Jesus, but it's towards pleasure and wealth and uh, economic prosperity. And something about this woman on the beast is she has in her hand a goblet <laughs> full of something cool and refreshing, I'm sure. Uh, no, actually, uh, it's full of abomination, disgust, filthiness, the filthiness of the fornication of a harlot. You know, and if she tries to seductively tell you, I don't bite, she bites. Okay? She bites. In her cup is filthiness, fornication, and in a little bit, she's going to destroy. It's interesting. You, you may know a little bit that I've uh, inherited, sort of, I took my grandfather's diary <laughs> and his journals uh, and all of his letters from World War II when he was in Europe fighting uh, in the bomb squadron, uh, flying over France and Germany and Europe. And I've got his letters, and I'm reading them, and I'm transposing them Onto Facebook, like every day is making a social network status update from 1941 right now. And, uh, and the other day, his journal entry from January 14th, 1941, this is written while he is part of setting up an, a military base in Little Rock, Arkansas. He wrote, this noon, we had a lecture by two medical officers who said that between eight and 10,000 prostitutes had been moved into Little Rock, and that 85 to 90 percent of them are diseased. It hardly seems believable. And we were pleased that the end of that journal entry said, spent the night writing letters. <laughs> you know, I made a little joke like, took a little stroll around Little Rock. No, don't do that. Don't take the stroll around Little Rock. That's what Proverbs 7 is all about. Stay at home and write your letters. <laughs> Make that covenant with your eye. Because this harlot of this religious system, idolatry that steals our heart away from Jesus, the one true God, to worship anything and everything that might just tickle our ears and flutter our fancy. Jeremiah 51.7 speaks of Babylon, that Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Babylon was suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her, take balm for her pain, perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she's not healed. Forsake her and let us go, everyone to his own country, for her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up uh, to the skies. And just a little bit, we're going to see more about really who this Babylon is, but right here we see that Something about the cup that she has. Often in the book of Revelation, we see that the cup speaks of wrath that's going to be poured out upon her. Wrath that she is going to have to drink. And in Revelation 14.8, just a few weeks ago, a second angel out of three flies over the world saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, and we'll see that fall next week. Because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So she's made all the nations drink of this. And, uh, and she herself is going to have to drink it as well. And uh, verse 5, let's move back, back to our text. Revelation chapter 17 verse 5. And on her forehead a name was written. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. Uh, one of Greg Laurie's pastors wrote a book on this, and he said, in your scripture memorization program, there would be better verses for you to memorize than this one. <laughs> so if you're thinking of starting to memorize, by just Judas wept is a great place to start. Or Jesus wept is a great place. Not Judas. 
Judas, not Iscariot, wept. Okay, just kidding. Go ahead and memorize this. It's fine. Don't miss the point. Um, she has a name written on her forehead. It's, a, it's quite the name. It takes up a lot of forehead space when you're... <laughs> the guy with the black glove is like, you really want all of this? <laughs> all of it. You should probably go home and sober up from that golden goblet in your hand before we... You know, it's going... Okay. Uh, I guess one translation says that she had a headband on her. So that's watering it down, isn't it? Like, uh, not a real tattoo. It was a headband on her forehead that said these things. But she had, when, it's, when name is spoken of in the scripture, it speaks of your reputation. It speaks of your category. It speaks of your cause. And it speaks of your authority. So she has this name, headband, tattoo, whatever, that reveals a mystery to us who she is. And it says that she is uh, Babylon the Great. There's this secret doctrine about her, this mystery of Babylon. Babylon mentioned clear back in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, right after uh, Noah's flood. And, and now we have at the end of the book of Revelation, Babylon. And, and through and through, Babylon is a focal point of the scripture. Babylon, the name means gate of the gods. And here in 17, this religious ecumenical movement of faith-based um, luxury, it is, it's literally a gate to the gods of false worship. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 that says that the mystery, speaking of mysteries, of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And so perhaps as John was writing this in his culture, he might have had in mind Rome as he read of this Babylon of his day. But I think its significance goes way beyond Rome or who John was writing about. Uh, because Babylon, clear back in Genesis chapter 10, we see just after Noah's flood that Nimrod, who's a mighty hunter before the Lord and a builder of cities, those of us reading in our Genesis reading plan right now, we've recently learned about Nimrod. <laughs> it's a great name, isn't it? We were listening to a, a Bible on CD. It's a great entertaining drama of the Bible going down to Klamath Falls, and we got to Babylon, and Titus, my five-year-old's like, his name was Nimrod, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know, uh, I don't know where you would go with that name. This rod, you know, lobotomy or a guy with an arrow through his head, like Nimrod. I don't know. I want to go places with that right now, but the Holy Spirit's stopping me. So some, some was a good, good idea. Okay. Some scholars believe that the name in Hebrew is rebel. Or to rebel. Now whether that's what his name means or not, that's what he did. Because right after the flood, the same decree was given as at creation in the garden. That Noah and his sons were to be fruitful and multiply. And go about the whole earth with the imago Dei. Which means to go about and show the image of God to all of creation. And just a couple grandsons removed from Noah... We have Nimrod through the line of Ham, uh, who, you know, he, he kind of went through that line of, of compromise, if you know what happened with Ham and Noah uh, there after the flood. But Nimrod, instead of continuing to be fruitful and multiply as a builder of cities, he stopped in Babylon and he began to exalt his heart against God. And he began to build what's called the Tower of Babel. And he said, you know, let's, let's build this thing and build this thing so that we can be like God, essentially. And the Lord knew, he discerned, and he said, you know, this is not a good thing. They are, they're pulling a Lucifer on me here. And so let's go down, and in a very Trinitarian statement, God says, let us go down and confuse their language. And then it's then that the gate of the gods of Babel became Babel with a Y, and they begin to babble. They began to babble, and the speech was confused, and they, they dispersed throughout the earth because of the confusion of the language. And if you study uh, some studies, H.A. Ironside has a good study, you can track from Babylon 
And that rebellious heart of paganism and wickedness and exalting yourself against God, you can track all the way through history, through the nations, even to modern day, uh, how that system of Babylon has pervaded throughout uh, the centuries. Um, But we see that she is the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. She's the archetype or the prototype of prostitution, and prostitution begets prostitution, it's been said. She begets more and more detestable things who beget more and more detestable things. Mounts writes in Revelation, that great system of godlessness that leads people away from the worship of God to their own destruction. There's a begetting and a begetting and a genealogy from this harlot that has always led people against worship of God to our own destruction. The Babylon that we read of that, took, that began back with Nimrod goes to this day and will have a very real reality in the government systems again in the future is an ever-present reality. She is a seductress that exists to entice in every age and in every generation. And if you will allow the Lord to speak into your heart right now, He will show how she has had her effect on you. Take a moment and don't let this be some distant thing that's going to happen later on in the the day of the Lord. Right now, Bible scholars and interpretation all come to this application to say she has had her effect in every day. Lord, how has she had her effect in me in 2020? This last year, even these last weeks and months. She's a this world perspective harlot. Just keep your mind on this world, this life, the pleasures now, today's pleasures. Forget about eternity. Forget about having to give an account of yourself before God. Forget about that God has a plan for you on this earth and you're to be a part of his mission here to bring him much glory and to save people from... Forget about all that pleasure here and now. Uh, The exalting Jesus in Revelation commentary said, seduced by the sirens, which was kind of a uh, mermaid type creature that would you know the the history of the folklore was that the sailors would hear the sirens singing you know the little mermaid singing and they'd have to cover their eyes so that they couldn't see these sirens because if they seduced you to look at them they'd, they'd kill you and the commentary says that seduced by the sirens and idols of the day we run madly down a path of spiritual and eternal suicide Proverbs 6, 32 through 33 says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. But you've got to understand, as we read this proverb, we're, we're going deeper than just sexual immorality or an affair here. We're going deep into the issues of our heart that are adultery. And when we turn away from Jesus and begin to worship dumb idols that are temporary and not eternal, they lead to destruction and we lack discernment. The world is murderous, our outline tells us. Here in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of martyrs of Jesus And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The world is murderous. She martyrs saints. She martyrs people who follow Jesus. And to such a degree that when John the Revelator, who's seen some things, when he sees this, he's just amazed. He's astounded. We read about it in chapter 16. We read about it in chapter 13, that anyone who doesn't worship the Antichrist or the beast or receive his mark will be killed in the end days. And so this system, this Babylon has blood on her hands. She has martyred and slayed and murdered 
followers of Jesus who would be loyal to Jesus in these end times. Uh, next week, we'll see in Revelation 18.24 that in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. This Babylon is destructive as she's driven by self-interest. She's willing to sacrifice others to promote her own benefit, her own prosperity. And we see that all across the globe today with abortion, euthanasia, infanticide, genocide. We see that wherever there's paganism, there's a lack of a, of a value of human life. And we see an increase of a value for created things, animal life and such. Um, and when I saw her, I marveled. And moving on, verse 7, we, we see this next point of the outline that not only is this Babylon murderous, but she is resilient. This, and, it's, and to apply it today, we can even say this world is resilient. It keeps coming back for more. Just when you think you've cut off that addiction or cut off that temptation or cut it off and, and you just can't go around with your guard down because she's going to come at you from another direction. And verse 7 shows us her resilience where we see the meaning of the woman and the beast show up. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see that the beast uh, that was and is not and yet is. And so something that we've seen from chapter 13 of Revelation is that the Antichrist will will have some sort of an assassination attempt on his life. He's going to receive some kind of a head wound, the Bible tells us. Some sort of a wound that uh, it's apparently deadly. It appears to have killed him. And he is going to have some sort of a resurrection uh, experience. Uh, in fact, it's a, it's a play on what Jesus has done. We joked about it back in Revelation chapter 13 when you know Jesus is like, I already did that. That, that was my thing, right? That was my gig. I died and rose from the dead. You're not worshiping me, but you're following this guy. And, and so the Antichrist truly does come and, and tries to uh, do a parody of Jesus's life. He was, and then he wasn't because he appeared to die, and then he comes back again. And this resurrection of the Antichrist is just going to set the world just on fire with a love for him. The, the world is going to become passionate for the Antichrist at this point. You read about it in Revelation 13.3, 13.12, 13.14, uh, all about this wound that he receives and how it grows his popularity. Um, and so as we began this study, we noticed that all of mankind has been created to be a worshiper of something. We were designed to be worshipers. God designed us to be worshipers of his but just because we don't worship him in our rebellion doesn't mean we're not worshipers of anything. It just means we begin to worship everything else, including ourselves. G.K. Chesterton once said, people think that when they do not believe in God, they believe in nothing. But the fact is, they will believe in anything. And we see here men not believing in God, I don't believe in God, but I'm going to worship this guy. And they become worshipers of him. And we see that this guy ascends up out of the bottomless pit, but then he's going to go. He has a, a destiny in perdition or destruction. Verse 9, we see that the, this world, this Babylonian uh, system, religious system, is organized. It has a plan. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Okay, so, oh, there's like seven heads on this beast. I'll never be able to figure this out. And, uh, you know, shut your Bible, never read it again. Okay, uh, it's still difficult, but it says, hey, here's wisdom. Take time to understand and to study this. The seven heads um, on this beast 
are seven mountains that the woman is sitting upon. So uh, most agree that the seven heads uh, as seven mountains is a reference to Rome in the first century context. Uh, Rome has been known as the city that sits on seven hills. And so uh, that's at least uh, an immediate understanding of what John may have seen. But more interpretation is given to us here. Verse 10 says, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other's not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So in Israel's history alone, uh, there were five kings or kingdoms that had fallen and had passed off the scene. Kingdoms that ruled over Israel at some point. One was Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, and Greece. Okay? Then we see that there was a kingdom that is, at the time John wrote, that's obviously Rome. And then there's the one that's not yet come. It's the kingdom of the Antichrist. And we've studied this early in our Revelation study. You can look at Daniel uh, chapter 2, Daniel chapter 9. We know this to be what's called the revived Roman Empire, okay? It's going to be some sort of a Roman Empire. It's going to have some sort of DNA from the Roman Empire of of Paul's day and of John's day, and it's going to come back on the earth. It's going to be what the Antichrist is going to rule over, okay? Um, And so I'm just going to move on here. We'll get a little more interpretation of this as we wrap up. But uh, we see not only is uh, the world organized with these Uh, kingdoms being a part of it, some sort of a united nations or some sort of a federation, some sort of a coalition, but it's also powerful, even though its time is short. Verse 11 says that the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to uh, perdition. Uh, Verse 12 will help us with that. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who've received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And so because of uh, this Antichrist being alive, being a part of the Federation, and then dying, and then being like born again, having new life, he's considered to have been not only the seventh king in this bit, but also the eighth, because he's like born again. He's like a new, a new guy with new power, okay? Um, and then the, that's part of the, the seven heads issue, but we also have these ten horns. And it's just helpful to know, like, oh, horns on this beast. You read the book of Daniel, you read the prophets. These horns often speak of a number of kings who are going to be a part of some sort of federation, coalition, or even um, kingdoms with multiple kings, Uh, We see they don't have a lot of authority, but they're just for a little bit of time, like the seven-year tribulation period, in the scope of human history, seven years or three and a half years of that, it's just a little snippet on the world timeline. These kings just have a tiny little little 15 minutes of fame, in a sense, and uh, and they're going to rule with the beast. Verse 13 says, they're of one mind. But eventually something's going to happen where they give all their authority to the beast. And it's believed that once that beast rose from the dead, that uh, they're all going to be like, dude, you should probably just lead this thing. You know, you should probably just captain this ship because we ain't never seen anything like this before. Because Second Thessalonians says that the coming of the lawless one is according to many lying signs and wonders. He's just totally duping these kings. And so they're going to give the authority to the beast Their little time of power was very short. Uh, And moving on, this world is a foolish world because it's going to oppose the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look at verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb. So all ten of them giving their uh, authority, deferring to the Antichrist, the beast. They all think it's a good idea to just go ahead and pick a fight with Jesus. So just in case you're thinking of doing that, it's a bad idea typically doesn't go very well, okay? Uh, They make a war with Jesus, who is known as the Lamb. 
the lamb who was slain, the lamb whose blood provided sacrificial atonement for my sins and for yours. Jesus, the hero of the world, the savior of the world, who washes away the sins of the world. He's a nice guy. He's a great guy. And these guys think, let's just go ahead and wipe him out. And so uh, that doesn't last very long because the lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And so uh, you might be wondering, well, when does this happen? Chapter 17 and 18 are parentheses. They're a parenthetical chapter where it's just kind of giving a little bit of an overview of what's going to happen in the midst of this whole time of the tribulation. We're going to see the lamb overcoming them in chapter 19, towards the end of that chapter. Moral of the story, really of the entire chapter today, you might be like, seven heads and ten horns and revived Roman empires and coalition forces and seven hills and mountains and blah, 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 blah. You know what? There are so many different books that are written on, you know, oh, it's the Roman Catholic Church, or it's actually the United States occupying Iraq because they're in Babylon. This, I mean, it's just like, you know, it is ridiculous. Like, it's just not even interesting anymore. <laughs> because in all of these wacky interpretations by people that fall away from the Lord, by the way, <laughs> they believed in it so much that they just went ahead and lived for Babylon. All of it gets away from the main point. The main point is Jesus wins. All right? The main point is don't pick a fight with the lamb. Don't live for Babylon. Live for Jesus. Live for the new Jerusalem. Be on the lamb's side. Okay? Mary had a little lamb. I hope you have a little lamb. Because there's some that are with him here in this very verse. It says those that are with him are three things. They are called, they are chosen, and they are faithful. And this is one verse that shows the mystery of God's sovereignty, that he, from before the foundations of the world, he knew you, he's called you to him to come to salvation, he knew you by name, he has called you, he has chosen you, divine election, it is a truth of the scripture. And yet also there's human responsibility to receive his calling, to receive his grace through the instrument of faith by just resting in his calling, by just surrendering to his choosing of you, to receive him by faith, by belief in your heart. And we have this bit of man's responsibility here that, that says that they are faithful followers. They're faithful. Of course, it's God's grace in the end that causes us to even be faithful. And so, we really don't have much of a role in this. In chapter 19, you're going to see that Jesus, when he comes to fight against these dumb, dumb kings, he's going to be on a white horse, and he's going to have a sword, and he's going to have his own tattoos. It's going to be pretty cool. And he's going to be with the armies of heaven. I believe that's the saints. I believe that's us. We've just spent seven years in paradise with him. And we're going to be on white horses. We're going to be riding. You might want to take some riding lessons. Shannon Newell. Talk to Shannon Newell. She'll help you out. She's got a little white horse for you to practice on. Stella, it's a gray horse. You might get bucked off. Just, it's all right. Just get back on. Okay. There's going to be a lot of people falling off. Coming. Okay, not Stella. Oh, she's too sweet. All right. So I believe we're going to be coming back. The Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints, Jude tells us. 10,000s and thousands of his saints. And we're going to be just like, woo-hoo, you know. Our feet are going to be falling out of our stirrup and our cinches are going to be loose, you know. You know. And the Lord's just going to, the armies of the earth are going to be like, shoot the lamb. And Jesus is going to be like. That's it, right? I mean, that's really how it happens, okay. Read it for yourself. These saints are faithful, they're by his side, they're there with him, and they are those who have chosen the new Jerusalem and to follow the lamb wherever he goes instead of the harlot. And wrapping up here, this world is self-destructive. It is not going to last. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, remember there was a, a harlot 
sitting upon many waters, and you're like, I don't know what that could possibly be. The waters that you saw where the harlot sits are peoples. She's going to be ruling and reigning upon peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. All throughout the scripture, we see that Jesus has a heart for the nations, for them to be saved, the farthest tribes in the jungle and the mountains and the desert. God has a heart for them to be reached. Every language, every tongue, every people group. That is our job, to be a part of God's heart and to go out and to reach. That's why we go to Nepal, so that these nations are reached with the gospel, so that they're not a part of this harlot's reign over them. Because she will reign over them. This religious system will deceive them. All of these peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And verse 16 says that the ten horns that you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Remember I was talking about the rodeo from hell? You know, some friends and I were just reliving uh, Tough Heedman's ride on Bodacious back in the 90s, if you remember in the, in the NFR rodeo, that Tough drew Bodacious, and Bodacious, this bull, had this trick where he would jump up and he'd cause the cowboy's head to fall back, and then he'd go down, and then he'd pop his head back up real quick, and it's just like getting hit in the face with a tank. And Tough Heedman was hit in the face, and just immediately his face was broken all up. And uh, essentially, this is the bull ride from the NFR 1994 right here. Because this beast, she's riding it. It appears she's in control. I'm a false religious system. The Bible calls me a harlot, you know. And then the beast with these ten horns just goes, okay. Does the tough heedman to her, okay. Does the bodacious to her. And we see that these ten kings, that they, they eat her flesh and make her naked and burn her with fire, this religious system is going to have an end because you're not going to need all of these faiths anymore because we're all going to worship one guy, the Antichrist. Verse 17 says, God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And so as we have the worship team come back up, we see God's sovereignty in all of this. That, you know, oh my goodness, it seems like it's just so much chaos and that there's no, it's anarchy, there's no control. And yet we see that God is in control. And that part of God's judgment on a sinful world and a Christ-rejecting world, part of his judgment is to allow this Antichrist and his federation and his false religion to do their thing. It's part of his judgment upon the world. And verse 18, closing out, says, The woman whom you saw is that great city, Babylon, who reigns over the kings of the earth. And so just final takeaways from today. You can close your Bibles. Good application from today. I don't want you to get all stressed out about if it's the Roman Catholic Church or the U.S. forces going back to Iraq or whatever. Like, man, love Jesus, Okay. Love Jesus, follow Jesus, encourage your friends and your family to love Jesus, to receive his salvation. Follow the Lamb, okay? Be on the Lamb's side. And in all of this, remember that every single one of us, and I just have been praying that the Lord would just speak to us that every single one of us has drank the wine of this fornication. From birth, from before birth, we inherited a nature that drank this wine. And then not only did we inherit it, we imputed it upon ourselves. We heaped upon ourselves this wine, this fornication, this immorality, this adultery. Every time we said that God was wrong, he doesn't really know, he doesn't really have it figured out, but I know, I'm right, I'm going to go for this pleasure because it can't, surely can't harm me, can't hurt me, I'm going for this. Every time we've ever done that, you know, cheating on a test, cheating on your homework in your youth, stealing a penny candy, whatever it might be that you think was just so harmless, you were just drinking of that wine of the, of the woman that we're reading up here. Every single one of us has drank of the wine of her fornication. There was one who did not. And his name was Jesus. And he came and he lived a sinless life, a perfect life. 
Before he even came, there's a prophecy in Psalm 40 that says when he was getting ready to just be launched down to earth into Mary's womb, just this incredible story, Psalm 40 says that he told the Father, you've prepared a body for me, and I delight to do your will in it. And so when he came to the earth, he had this, he had a baby body, that baby body turned into a 12-year-old body. A 12-year-old body eventually grew to be a 33-year-old body. And every day of his life, he delighted to do the Father's will and to obey the Lord. And yet he drank a cup, the cup of the cross at Calvary, the cup where judgment was poured out upon him for the sins of the world. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, Lord, if it's possible, if there's any other way for mankind to be saved from their sins and from their harlotry, let's go that way because the cross is not sounding good and being separated from you on the cross is not sound. Is there any other way? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he willingly went to the cross and he willingly drank of the cup of the wrath of God against sin, against my sin and your sin. That if anyone would believe on him, you won't perish in what we're reading here, but you'll have everlasting life. Will you pray with me today?